Hello and welcome to our latest podcast in the Great Fund Insights series. My name is Emma Danforth and I'm a partner in the Funds and Asset Management Group here at Allen & Overy. Today we're going to be discussing a key international tax development, Pillar 2, which provides for a global minimum rate of effective taxation. And we'll also be considering what this means for funds, private equity houses and others operating in the private capital area. Who better to talk about these important tax changes than my colleague James Burton, a tax partner in the London office, and Gillian Beckford, tax counsel in our Luxembourg team. Thank you both for joining me. Hi Emma. Hi Emma. So James, before we get into the details, can you take me through some basics? What exactly is Pillar 2? Yeah, sure. So I'm sure that lots of the listeners will already be familiar with the BEPS project. Now that's been led by the OECD and G20, and it's aiming for a kind of overarching reform of the international tax system to try and ensure it remains fit for purpose in what is an increasingly digitalized and globalized economy. So in that context, the private capital sector has already been wrestling with changes to treaty rules, as well as the EU implementation of the BEPS rules through ATAD 1 and ATAD 2. Pillar 2 is basically the latest staging post as part of that project. So the basic concept behind Pillar 2 is to ensure that multinationals pay a minimum level of tax on their global profits, regardless of where they operate. By having that minimum level of tax, the idea is that it reduces the incentives for multinationals to shift profits to low or no tax jurisdictions. Crucially, it also reduces the incentive for governments themselves to compete against each other to attract multinationals to their jurisdictions through offering lower tax rates, which had kind of historically created a risk of of some sort of race to the bottom. So for Pillar 2, the main mechanism for collecting the tax is to levy it at the level of the parent entity of the group. And so to the extent that any of its foreign subsidiaries or branches are not subject to an effective rate of tax of 15% or more, then the parent has to pay a top-up tax to make up the difference. So many countries already have a similar mechanism under their domestic law, usually referred to as controlled foreign companies or CFC rules. So in a sense, Pillar 2 is essentially just a common global CFC regime. So not to state the obvious, but surely you could just set up your group with a parent entity in a country that isn't implementing these rules and get outside of this regime? Yeah, well, they did think of that. And the clever thing about the way the rules have been designed is that if the parent entity is in a country like that that hasn't implemented the rules, then they have a sort of set of backup rules to make sure the tax is collected elsewhere in the group. So it means it's in the interests of all of the different countries to implement the rules, because even if one country doesn't collect the top-up tax, the chances are that the multinational is still going to have to pay it. So it's just going to be another country that gets the benefit of those tax revenues. So in effect, that's going to encourage more and more governments to implement Pillar 2 to enable them to get that tax themselves. So Gilliam, how many countries introduced these rules as a result? Uh, well, boosting public revenues with new rules may sound like an excellent opportunity for lawmakers. Over 130 jurisdictions agreed to the rules in principle back in 2021. However, this didn't require them to introduce the rules themselves. So we have been keeping a close eye over the last couple of years to see whether this would become a reality or not. A big turning point came at the end of last year when the EU finally agreed a new tax directive, another one, on Pillar 2. And it now seems that Pillar 2 will be a reality for any group that operates in the EU. 
the UK is also on track to implement, together with an increasing number of other jurisdictions such as Japan, Korea, Hong Kong, or Switzerland. So any group with any presence in any of these countries or the EU will need to get to grips with these quite complex rules. And I'm sure the question that our listeners are keen to hear the answer to is, does this top-up tax apply to all groups that are operating internationally, or are there any exemptions that could be applicable? Well, I would mention three things here. Firstly, even though the OECD rules target multinationals, the EU directive applies to domestic groups as well. And there are other countries that are taking the same approach. So it's not just multinational groups that need to be aware of these rules. The second point to make is that the rules only apply to groups whose global consolidated revenue is over Euro 750 million or equivalent euros. So that will exclude quite a lot of funds and private equity houses. In addition, the third point to make is that there are certain exclusions from the rules which may be relevant to those in the private capital space. So it sounds like how the accounting consolidation is expected to operate is going to be a key factor as to whether groups are in or out of scope of Pillar 2. Gilliam, can you explain why that is? Sure, Emma. When you're looking at whether a group meets that 750 million threshold, you do this based on what is in the consolidated accounts. So if a fund or an asset holding vehicle has to include its portfolio businesses in its consolidated accounts, then it's much more likely that they will be over that revenue threshold. Similarly for PE houses, if they have to consolidate the PE fund in the accounts, then the entire fund's underlying income would be in scope. On the other hand, we expect that in most cases, investment funds would not have to consolidate their portfolios, which may help to keep their revenues below the threshold. Of course, if any individual portfolio investment exceeds this threshold, then that part of the portfolio would be potentially uh, in scope of Pillar 2 in its own right. As a result, this investment may itself be looking at top-up taxes to the extent that the effective tax rate for that business is less than 15%. Interesting. And could you expand a little more on the exceptions that may be available if a group has met that threshold? Sure. Uh, there is a concept of excluded entities, and this applies to governmental entities and not-for-profit, and importantly to investment funds largely. Indeed, the excluded entities definition includes pension funds, investment funds that are parent entities, uh, and real estate investment vehicles. The OECD has also confirmed that uh, sovereign wealth funds are excluded from the rules. So as, as a kind of funds lawyer, James, can I optimistically ask if that means that all funds and real estate investment vehicles can simply forget about these rules? Nice try, but I'm afraid not, no. Um, so I mean, the first hurdle in that regard is whether or not you're within the scope of the relevant definitions. And, and even that isn't always straightforward. In fact, it's, it's something we've been looking at already with our clients. The next step is that even if you have a particular entity that is within the scope of one of these exemptions, it doesn't automatically take out the rest of the group. So you have to look at how much of the groups covered by the exclusions, and you may still have to apply the rules to the remaining entities. For example, I guess if you've got a fund where the fund vehicle itself is excluded because it satisfies the definition of an investment fund, its fund manager and its investors may still be within the scope of the rules. 
importantly, the revenues of excluded entities still count when you're working out if a group exceeds the 750 million threshold that Guillaume mentioned earlier. So James, aside from the tricky questions of working out whether you are in or out of scope, what are the other aspects of this new minimum tax that clients are thinking about? Well, I mean, I suppose the obvious point is that if you or your investment are within the scope of the top-up tax, then potentially there is additional tax liabilities that will need to be factored into the modelling. But more broadly, I guess it's also potentially going to impact on how deals are structured because people are going to be keen to ensure that investments are held in the most efficient manner from a pillar two perspective. So often that's going to be looking at accounting consolidation and trying to silo entities into different holding structures to maintain separation uh, from an accounting perspective, which is actually consistent with an approach that we've seen increasingly in relation to other sets of rules like the corporate interest restriction rules, this kind of concept of siloing. It's also inevitably going to impact deal structures because the tax benefits of having lots of intermediate holding companies in low or no tax jurisdictions just might not be there anymore. And I guess this is one of a number of developments that are pushing in that direction. And I suppose a final point is that as we've seen a lot in recent years in relation to ATAD2 in particular, fund documents now typically look to allocate to investors uh, tax costs that arise within the fund group to the extent that that liability down within the fund structure is attributable to the status of the investor. So in principle, I I think we'd expect the same approach to be taken in respect to Pillar 2, although working through the different possible permutations that flow from that simple conceptual position is unfortunately not going to be straightforward, I don't think. So maybe, Guillaume, having reminded our listeners just now of the joys of ATAD 2, perhaps would be a good time to mention what else the EU has in store for us in the coming years. Yes, thanks, James. Uh, Indeed, European lawmaker is a master of fiscal creativity. One of the major tax initiatives that the EU is working on now is a third version of the Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive, also known as the Unshell Directive. This aims to ensure that shell companies are not being used for aggressive tax planning or evasion. So if a company does not have sufficient substance in terms of staff, premises, or income, for example, then it may be denied the benefit of tax treaties or directives. If this is introduced, it will be necessary to take a closer look at certain fund structures to make sure that these are still most effective. For instance, well, will it make sense to have intermediate holding company structures, or will it make more sense to invest directly in target jurisdictions? It sounds like the unshell proposals are one we should be monitoring closely. I think tax enthusiast listening will be glad to hear we're going to come back to this in a future podcast. However, James, coming back to Pillar 2 for now, what else is worrying clients in this area? Well, one of the most consistent messages actually that we've been getting from clients is that the biggest headaches around this are not so much the potential additional tax liabilities, so much as the additional compliance burden that inevitably comes with Pillar 2 in terms of collecting data, preparing returns and doing all of the computations even in cases where at first blush you might think that the group will be covered by one of the exemptions. Um, Essentially what's going on is the overlay of a whole new standalone tax regime on top of existing domestic tax law that applies in every jurisdiction in which the fund already operates. And I guess another key question is when is all this expected to kick in? How long do people have to prepare for all of this? Uh, Maybe I can take that one. Well, On the one hand, the target for many jurisdictions is that 
the rules will take effect from 31st December this year. On the other hand, clients are having to think about the rules now, partly because the rules will be looking back at transactions that are already happening and additional disclosures and computation will need to be prepared. In addition for deals being negotiated now, it would be important to factor in any potential top-up tax liability when looking at financial modeling and deal structures. Thank you so much, Gilliam and James, for joining me and for your insights. And thank you all for listening. For anybody who'd like to find out more about Pillar 2 or other tax developments, please go to the Alan Avery website. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks.